Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. lesser-known stories, legends, people, and places of the Buckeye State. So buckle in, here we go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. I'm Dan, and this guy is Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, Dan. What do you got in store for us today? Today, we are going back in time to an era of organized crime and the raid on one of the most notorious gambling dens between New York and Chicago. Oh, good. I'm in the mood to hear about some organized crime. What's the story about? This is the story of Elliot Ness's raid on the notorious Harvard Club gambling den. In 1935, Cleveland Mayor Harold Burton recruited celebrated crime fighter Elliot Ness to clean up the scandal-ridden Cleveland Police Department. At the time, Cleveland was the fifth largest city in the nation, but it ranked first as the most dangerous city in the country. Corruption, greed, and scandal had reduced the power and effectiveness of the Cleveland Police Department. Elliot Ness was brought in to help solve the most pressing internal police force problems before launching his campaign against organized crime, but an opportunity soon arose that couldn't wait. Now that Prohibition was over, gangsters earned their money through illegal gambling clubs and numbers operations. In the Cleveland area, two major clubs operated openly and wantonly with little regard to the illegality of their business. So it sounds like he's going to have his hands full, obviously. Yes, and in reality, he did a good job, except for the small matter of the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. And that's a whole different episode or maybe even a part one, two, part three episode that we'll have to get into somewhere down the road. Yes, yes, we will. And clearly a stain on the history of Cleveland, Mm -hmm. but certainly a compelling story and one that we'll talk about a little bit later. So back in 1935, illegal gambling was everywhere. It was throughout Cuyahoga County in the city of Cleveland, and it really depended heavily on police protection and corruption. 
paying cops to look the other way and lean on their criminal opponents. However, outside the city limits of Cleveland, the Sheriff's Department enforced the law for the small suburban towns and villages, creating jurisdictional headaches. As lax as the Cleveland police were, corruption in the Sheriff's Office was even worse. When Honest John Sulzman became sheriff, gambling joints prospered without any interference, and a number of new clubs had opened up, creating a criminal paradise. Honest John, huh? Honest John. Yeah, okay. Certainly, there's some there's some dark humor in that name. A little bit. Little bit, and he was anything but. Reporters, after visiting the notorious Harvard Club published a detailed description of the gambling activities along with diagrams of where the gambling equipment was set up inside the club. So the reporters sent the whole package to Sheriff Solzman, and they also included, as kind of a joke, a set of instructions of even how to get to the club, which acted without impunity on a major urban street. Sounds like a fun time. If you were into illegal gambling, yes, it had to be quite a time. So, after a couple of hours after the story appeared in the newspaper, Salzman was embarrassed into sending out a squad of deputies to the Harvard Club. Somehow, somewhere along the way, the deputies got lost and reached the club more than two hours later, just after all the gambling equipment and patrons had been cleaned out of the club. The day after the deputies left, the Harvard Club was again open for business as usual. Not only did these mob clubs operate in open defiance of the law, they would also cheat their customers out of large sums of money with rigged equipment, loaded dice, and assortment of other tricks. More than one man committed suicide after losing everything he had in one of the club's crooked card games. Finally, in 1934, the county prosecutor finally had incontrovertible evidence which he would use to convict the owners of the clubs, only to have the judge sentence the mobsters to a mere 15 days in the county jail. The prosecutor was even more furious when Sheriff Salzman specifically refurbished his jail so the gangsters could enjoy all the luxuries of home during their short confinement. Salzman kept the gangsters separated from the normal jail riffraff so the mobsters wouldn't feel stigmatized by the reprimand. The clubs never shut down even while their owners were in jail. It sounds like the money was flowing all over the place. Yes, in fact, it kind of sounds like that scene in the movie Goodfellas where the mobsters have their own special jail away from the general population and they ate all those elaborate meals. So it was a little different from uh, when Capone was at Alcatraz. Yes, it certainly was. And it just truly shows you how bad corruption really was. Mm -hmm. The county prosecutor was an honest, aggressive lawyer named Frank Culleton, who was hell-bent on closing the two biggest gambling joints in the Cleveland area, the Harvard and Thomas Club. In January of 1936, he executed his plan, operating covertly so the clubs wouldn't be tipped off. Culleton needed trustworthy men, so instead of including honest Sheriff Salzman in the plan, he secretly hired 25 men from the McGrath Detective Agency. So, so the police were so corrupt, they were purposely excluded on the raid. Yeah, isn't that crazy? So the police were so corrupt, they couldn't even get the, the police involved in a raid on illegal gambling. They had to go outside to this detective agency. Wow. In fact, they wouldn't even be notified. Otherwise, the police were sure to be, tip off the criminals. So other than excluding the sheriff, Culleton did everything with formal propriety. 
He got two sets of search warrants from a justice of the peace in Cleveland Heights for the search and seizure of all the gambling equipment inside each of the clubs. I'm glad that judge wasn't on the wrong yeah, side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, other warrants also charged the individual owners, such as James Shimmy Patton. Shimmy Patton. Shimmy Patton with operating illegal gambling establishments. At the same time, the Justice of the Peace swore in Culleton's private detectives as special constables, so now they're officially cops. He divided his people into two groups, and late in the afternoon on January 10, 1936, he left from the Cleveland Heights City Hall for the Thomas Club with half the constables. His chief assistant, McNamee, also took the rest of the constables to the Harvard Club. So trouble ahead, and, and this is all part of the raid. Yes, well, not initially. But uh, he gets involved pretty quick. From the outside, the Harvard Club was just a large drab building that looked like it had been a store. Later, an enormous addition ballooned out the back, dwarfing the original building. So you can't really tell that this was a gambling den. And wooden cowls covered all of the windows of the big rambling building to discourage outsiders from monitoring what went on inside the club. So they're there. They're at the club, and McNamee walked right up to the front door and pounded on it. So this is the Harvard Club, and he told the doorman who he was and unsuccessfully tried to push his way inside. A few moments later, a short, fat man with black hair, plastered back from his face with pomade, appeared at the door and allowed him inside. McNamee recognized the man as James Shimmy Patton, one of the gangsters who owned the Harvard Club. I have warrants to search this place and arrest you and the other operators, McNamee would tell Patton. Patton just sneered at him and told him to get out of the way or else he'd get hurt. If any of these guys you have with you try to get in here, we'll mow him down. And with that, Patton pointed to the men in the balcony around the inside of the club, each armed with a machine gun aimed at McNamee's head. Wow. Oh, yeah. So McNamee would estimate that there were a thousand people in the club, and he understood that if his men stormed the place, a lot of the customers inside could be killed. Mm -hmm. Considering these risks, he decided to wait until he could talk to Culleton, who was executing the raid on the Thomas Club. It was demoralizing to just stand around one side of the building on the coldest day of the year, and the strong wintry blast from Lake Erie cut mercilessly through their winter coats. Some look for refuge in the gas station across the street while others rub their hands together trying to keep warm. So here you have all these deputies. Yeah, it's a standoff. It's a standoff. They're trying to raid. The owner has threatened, hey, if you step anywhere near this place, we're going to kill you. We're going to mow you down. They didn't know what to do. So they're waiting for the people that were executing the raid on the other club. So that's going to double their manpower. So they're they're waiting in the cold. They should have maybe done these one at a time. Well, that's one one way to think about it. But if you do one at a time, it's gonna it's gonna tip off Tough the other one. Right. So you. probably yeah. smarter, but just the execution, they knew it was gonna be it was Poor, gonna be a problem. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like a showdown is about to happen. Did anyone try to escape? Um, not really. No, not at first. Uh, since a raid was so unusual, nobody kind of knew what, what to do at right? first. <laughs> so after successfully raiding the Thomas Club, Culleton arrives on the scene, and McNamee briefs him on what's going on. Meanwhile, Shimmy Patton, the owner, the mobster, he's dressed in an expensive green hat and black overcoat with a white silk scarf billowing around his fat neck, waddled up to them and started to swear loudly, anybody that goes in there will get their goddamn heads blown off. Wow. 
Now, Culleton had no reason to doubt a bloodbath. If he and his men tried to enter the club, nor could he expect a group of hired detectives to risk their lives for this crusade. Maybe if he had reinforcements, he would be able to intimidate the truculent, tough-talking Patton into giving up. And from the gas station across the street, he called Detective Inspector Joseph Sweeney of the Cleveland Police and asked for two squads of men. But Sweeney said he needed more time to work through the jurisdictional issues before he could sanction it. Now, it's important to note here that they're not in Cleveland proper. Hmm. They're in Cleveland Heights. So Cleveland doesn't have jurisdiction over Cleveland Heights, but he's asking for help in this matter. So he's got to get permission from Cleveland Heights. Cleveland police can send men down. So they don't know what to do. Well, and then how does he know that these cops weren't some of these corrupt cops that he tried to avoid involving in the first place? He can almost count on them to be corrupt cops. So he doesn't even know to, he doesn't even know if calling the Cleveland police is the best move. Right. Okay. Because he could just destroy the whole, the whole investigation. Right. Meanwhile, time's going on. And if you tell somebody in an illegal gambling parlor, hey, the cops are outside, I think they're going to try to escape. And that's, so that's what's going to happen. These people are going to start to leave knowing that they can see the cops right outside. And as this bureaucratic nightmare unfolds, it becomes more and more difficult for the cops that were there on scene to sit there with their hands in their pockets. They want to conduct this raid. They want to close this place down. Meanwhile, they're, they're, all this raid tape is going on in downtown Cleveland, but they still understand they need more men to execute this raid. And so this is kind of where the problem really starts to happen. Meanwhile, you have this owner of the club threatening to kill everybody. You take one step in there, I'll mow you down. Mm -hmm. So it had to be a tough thing to know exactly what to do. So the red tape continues. Absolutely. And I think this was partly by design that anything that they could throw in the way to stop the quick action, this is going to be beneficial to the mobsters. And so it was kind of a whole plan. The whole thing was was set up to really benefit the mobsters. Just this corruption prevented anybody from doing anything about it. So now Colton has a real problem on his hands. As he waits for somebody to help, cars are being filled with gambling equipment that they're driving away from the club. But his warrants didn't cover the equipment. It was only the people inside the club. And so as this equipment gets loaded up in the parking lot and it gets, it's taken away, he knows that his case is being watered down. It's going to be harder to prosecute them if there's no gambling equipment in this club they're trying to shut down. So he didn't surround the building? He didn't think that maybe they would try to slip stuff out the back? Did this even occur to him that, you know, I, I would have put somebody in the back of the building just for this purpose? Well, I think it wasn't even in the back of the building. I think oh, okay. they were doing it in front of them, oh, knowing that, oh, okay. <laughs> hey, if, if you're not going to come in raid, you certainly wouldn't care if I took this blackjack, blackjack machine out of here, would you? Wow. So as this equipment right. was flowing out the door, they okay. knew the cops couldn't do anything about okay. it. And it was probably maybe due to the protection that they paid the police department thinking, hey, wait a minute, I paid you. How could you be raiding my club? I already gave you the money this month, or however they had it worked well, out. Well, and I guess if he tries to stop them from walking this equipment out that that's going to just lead to a bloodbath because somebody's going to fire something or you know somebody's going to say something or who knows what's going to happen or maybe even just the threat of the bloodbath was enough to stop him so he just let him go ahead and do this well he felt like he didn't have a choice right okay so they're not going to stop him they're not going to initiate the fight they're still hoping that hey we still got mobsters inside so that's kind of what they're what they're no pun intended gambling on here right (laughs) 
So, and that's what they're trying to hammer out, the jurisdictional nightmare with the cops downtown. Meanwhile, stop this, stop people from taking the equipment directly out of the club and have enough to, to still shut it down. So that's kind of where the story is going. Okay, so now Culleton had a real problem on his hands. Cars filled with gambling equipment drove away from the club, but his warrants didn't cover the equipment, only the club itself and the people inside. The patrons inside had all scattered, and the club would probably strip bare when he and his men finally got into the club itself. Culleton had gone there to close the club, and that's what he had to do. If he gave up, it would signal the surrender of the state's largest county to a handful of gangsters. <laughs> Things had been so easy earlier that day at the Thomas Club raid. When the doormen of the Thomas Club wouldn't let the raiders in, they just picked up a long bench and used it as a battering ram. And the hall was so huge, a moving van had to make two trips to cart away the, all the roulette wheels, slot machines, and crap tables. Culleton had an idea, though. Maybe if he could get to Elliot Ness, the new Cleveland crime fighter, Elliot Ness could think of a way around the jurisdictional problems preventing the Cleveland police from joining in the raid. So Culleton telephoned the city hall and got a hold of Elliot Ness, who was pulled out of a city council meeting for this phone call. Elliot Ness was found to be more than happy to pitch in, but he told Culleton he owed it to Mayor Burton to consult with him before he would participate in this raid. So when Elliot Ness explained the problems to the mayor, the mayor was unsympathetic. Culleton had opposed Burton very strongly in the election, and he didn't want to take a lot of risk for a political opponent. But Ness would not accept no for an answer. So Ness has a moral dilemma, too. Sure does. And he had earned a reputation as someone who cuts through the red tape, and this would test him in his new role as Cleveland safety director. If we're going to clean up the city, Ness told his boss, we must support the honest man like Culleton even if they are Democrats. You told me when I took this job there would be no political interference. Now I'm holding you to your word. This is what Ness told the mayor. The jurisdictional problem meant that Elliot Ness had to act in his capacity as a private citizen, not in his official duties as the safety director. He went over to the central police station just as men were coming off duty, explaining the circumstances and asked if any of them would volunteer. I'm going over there, and I have to go alone, he told his men forcefully, then his voice softened considerably. But I sure would like to have some of you with me. I won't hold it against you if you don't volunteer, he would promise. You must understand that the city's responsibility for you ends when you cross the city limits into Newburgh Heights. If you get killed out there, as some of you might, your families could get cut out of the pension rolls. Despite all these risks, every one of the officers insisted on going along with Ness. Wow, that's, that's really impressive. So here we go. Yes, enter Elliot Ness. So when his volunteers were changing into their street clothes, Ness personally called the sheriff's office and demanded to speak with Chief Jailer Murphy. The prosecutor tells me he is in danger of his life. Will you go out there or won't you? Ness would ask him. I'll have to talk to the sheriff and call you back, Murphy said reluctantly. To hell with that. I'll wait, Ness said angrily. And a few minutes later, Murphy picked up the phone. No, he said finally, we won't go out there. Ness slammed the phone down in Murphy's ear. His next phone calls 
were to reporters to meet him at the Harvard Club to witness Cleveland policemen protecting this county prosecutor because the sheriff didn't care if he was machine gunned down by gangsters. So now here's the sheriff's department refusing to be part of this raid. It's crime in Cleveland, and the, the sheriff's refusing to go. So, so Ness kind of used the press to his advantage. Yeah, and that was something he was always really smart at. This would be a criticism of Ness. It was said that it was the most dangerous place to be was between Ness and a press camera. Hmm. So soon Ness and his volunteers were on their way. 29 patrolmen, 4 plainclothesmen, and 10 motorcycle cops, all fully armed with rifles, shotguns, billy clubs, and tear gas. And a few minutes later, the impressive caravan roared down Harvard Avenue, sirens screaming. Right behind this cavalcade of firepower were reporters and photographers from every local newspaper. It was a wonderful surprise for Culloden and his discouraged constables who had taken shelter from the bone-chilling cold in the gas station across the street. I can't believe that they were just standing around this whole time while Ness is trying to organize this stuff. I mean, it had a, how long did this take? It had to take hours, didn't it, for him to get down there to participate? I would imagine. Unfortunately, this gave the, the gangsters the opportunity to get everybody out of the club, so all the I'm, equipment out of the so club. That's what I'm saying. It's, wow, okay. So it had to be an interesting time to see all that going on and kind of not knowing if the violence would start at any minute. Wow. So soon, uh, Elliot Ness's army of policemen surrounded the entire building. Elliot Ness jumped out of his car and rushed over to Culleton so they could quickly put together their tactics to now storm the club. Completely unarmed as a private citizen, Elliot Ness took one of the biggest physical risks of his life and marched at the head of his volunteers. Now he's in plain clothes. He's not a cop. He's only in plain clothes now knowing full well that men with machine guns waited on the other side of the front door. So he's about to burst in. Elliot Ness. He took one of the cop's nightsticks and pounded on the club's front door. I'm Elliot Ness, he yelled, and I'm coming in with warrants. And with that, the club's big wooden doors opened just a crack. Ness shoved it forcefully and then banged it against the wall inside, shuddering on its hinges. He sucked in his breath and braced himself for a hail of gunfire from the men standing just a few feet in front of him. Now, remember, they had threatened him. They said, if you come in here, we're going to mow you down. Right. Five machine guns aimed at his body with armed thugs holding their fingers to the triggers. Elliot Ness glowered at them, hoping they were smart enough to realize that if they opened fire on him, the heavily armed cops behind him would shoot back and it would end in a bloodbath. And for the longest few moments of his life, Elliot Ness just stared them down. When Elliot felt reasonably certain that he had passed up their moment to shoot, he held the door open wide for Culleton's special constables to enter the club. This was the prosecutor's raid, and as constables should go in first, Elliot waited until all of Culleton's men were inside before he and his volunteers would enter the club. So not only did Elliot have guts, um, I think it's his his reputation like kind of preceded him. They, I think he got in because of who he was and that's why they didn't open fire. And that, that's really a great point. And it had to be a shock to stop that business as usual, the corruption and graft. LNS's point was, this is it. This is ended. I'm the new sheriff in town and yep. you're going to do what I say. So it had to be an unusual standoff knowing Hey, is, are the cops really going to follow Elliot Ness here? But they did. And so you're right. This is a, a terrific victory for Elliot Ness. No question about it. Once inside, Elliot Ness had 
seeing that the cavernous club was completely stripped of all the expensive gambling equipment. The enormous main room, measuring at least 90 feet on each side, was bare, except for the betting slips all over the floor, a couple of dice tables, and a gigantic blackboard. It was a race chart on the wall. In the ceiling was a small hole covered with a square of bulletproof glass. Ness pulled down a hanging ladder from the ceiling and climbed up inside. It was a strong room, a cubbyhole with slits for machine guns which could be trained on the gambling room or the money counting room in case of a raid or a holdup. In the main gambling hall, Elliot Ness recognized a newspaper photographer who was all ready to snap a picture when suddenly one of the gangsters rushed him and knocked him down. Elliot Ness tackled the mobster and brought him to the floor. At that moment, the police erupted spontaneously in battle with chairs flying across the room. It was a battle between the cops and the bad guys. But no gunfire yet. No gunfire yet. This is really impressive on Ness's part because he's discovering that machine guns in the ceiling, you know, in case of a raid, are there in case of a raid, yet nothing happened to him when he walked in. I think that, like I said, is who he was... I think might have just scared these gangsters. Yeah, his his reputationally definitely preceded him. And it had to be a kind of a high water mark knowing that there was somebody on the cops that they're not gonna stand down. They're yeah, gonna right? they're gonna stand up to these guys and uh they're gonna force them to be tough. Yeah. When the club was back under control, they arrested the twenty gangsters inside. They removed the dice and the blackjack tables and took down the race board. Elliot laughed when he noticed the sign on the wall announcing the limousine servicing the club ran for its customers, it ran every 15 minutes to and from seven locations around the city, and one of these locations was the Cleveland Heights City Hall, where Culleton and his constables had launched their raid several hours earlier. Just goes to show you how the corruption was. It was everywhere. You're going, you're, you're, you're providing a limousine service to the City Hall. So you're picking up what? Cops, mayors, elected officials? Come on in. It's, a, it's even more amazing that this raid even got pulled off with, with all the corruption. Definitely. And I think this raid really exposed it. And I think for the first time, a lot of people could see exactly how, how corrupt and backwards everything was. Ness and Cullen would shake hands for the photographers, and their main objective had been met. <clears throat> the two notorious clubs had been shut down. This was an important victory for Ness and the new mayor who had hired him, and really for the people of Cleveland who desperately needed this glamorous young hero, Elliot Ness. The flamboyant raid was his personal warning to the growing mob presence in the city that its time was up. The man who had destroyed the Al Capone bootlegging empire in Chicago had started his personal cleanup of Cleveland. Yeah, he certainly did it. Yes, he did. And this would really mark his first real victory in Cleveland and put organized crime faction on notice. There was new law enforcement in town. Hello. Thanks for listening. Elliot Ness. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more like it, head over to OhioMysteries.com. With over 500 podcasts to choose from, there's sure to be one that's going to keep you captivated. I'm Dan, and I can be found at YouTube at North Coast History and Haunts. My partner Mike can be found at Facebook at Too Late for Autographs. That's really interesting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this story. It's it's a great story. Yeah, that was fun. And we'll have to do some more organized uh, crime stories in Cleveland. So Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. See ya. All right. Bye.
Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.